Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Join host Dan Ray, BU Law alum and WBC 1030 radio host in Boston for this edition of the BU Law Podcast. And welcome on in to today's edition of the Boston University School of Law Podcast. I am Dan Ray, and I'm a proud graduate of the Boston University School of Law. Probably uh, more years ago than I want to acknowledge. Uh, I am a member of the bar here in Massachusetts and uh, have uh, chosen to practice journalism as a broadcast journalism at WBZ TV in Boston for 31 years. And now I do a talk show on WBZ News Radio 1030. As a reporter, I've covered countless cases in local, state, and federal courtrooms. And I also now have a talk show every Monday through Friday. From 8 to midnight, East Coast time on WBZ News Radio 1030. Easy to find. All you have to do is go to WBZ.com. We stream live 24-7. But today, uh, we're going to be uh, focusing uh, a conversation on how the law affects um, U.S. military veterans. And joining me today is an attorney and a fellow Boston University alumnus who graduated several years after I graduated. Uh, he has devoted his law practice, I should say, to helping American veterans. And we have a lot of American veterans. Attorney Robert Chisholm, who I'm going to refer to as Rob, is one of the preeminent attorneys, veterans attorneys in the nation. And he's been representing injured war heroes before the United States Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims and the Department of Veterans Affairs since way back in 1988 was when he graduated law school. Uh, in that time, uh, Rob, Robert Chisholm has successfully represented hundreds of cases and won substantial lifelong financial and medical benefits as well as large retroactive uh, cash awards. He's also written numerous briefs, uh, of friends, of, friends of the Court briefs, Amikai Curai, Mikas Curai, in support of veterans' cases. And, uh, and welcome, Rob, to, uh, to the Boston University Law School podcast. How are you today? I'm good, thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks very much for joining us. When when our soldiers come back from battle, many have suffered uh, uh, wounds. Uh, some are pretty obvious, the medical wounds. Some are maybe not so obvious, the psychological uh, wounds that they suffer. And, and treatment should be handled. It would be clear in my mind by the Department of Veterans Affairs or the VA, as it's called. Is the VA succeeding in its mission? Well, in terms of the medical benefits, I think the challenges that they face are the large number of soldiers coming back from both Afghanistan and Iraq presently. And the main challenge they're facing in terms of the physical injuries is the traumatic brain injury, so-called TBI by its acronym. And this is a very challenging uh, medical condition because it affects uh, all kinds of things in, in terms of cognitive functioning. And, the, you know, the VA has devoted resources to it, but I don't think they're quite on target with that. Uh, in terms of uh, helping these people to the extent they should be present. How, how easy or how difficult is it for veterans these days uh, to apply for benefits? I mean, the country's attitude towards veterans, the political atmosphere towards veterans, irrespective of what people might think about this war or that war, uh, is much more positive than it was uh, back in the 1960s and 70s when men and women were returning from Vietnam. Um uh, how easy is it for veterans to actually uh, get in line and, and get the benefits they deserve? In one respect, it's very easy because just about every state in the country has a regional office, and that's where the veteran or the widow or the dependent would go and file for benefits. 
The problem is the basic form that the VA uses to file an initial claim for benefits, and this is a non-adversarial system, um, is a 26-page form, and it is challenging even for one who has legal training to figure out what it is the VA is looking for in this form. Now, leave it to the government. Leave, leave it to the government to make things complicated. Right. It's my understanding they're about to change that and reduce it to a five or six page document. But right now it's a twenty six page document. So it's it's very challenging when you look at this form and try and figure out what it is you need to fill out in it. Now, if I was running the Veterans Administration, my attitude would be open the door and everybody comes in. But I guess there are some. Uh, veterans uh, who make claims and they're rejected, which of course is why in large part attorneys like you practice in this field. Um, is there a number on the percentage of veterans who come back and make a claim and the VA says, nope, we can't help you? I don't have firm numbers on this. My experience tells me that when you apply for initial benefits, that is an original claim for benefits having returned and saying that this physical condition or that psychiatric condition is due to your military service, um, my guess is that 50 to 60% of those are granted um, initially, but those are many cases, those are only partial grants, meaning that the VA did not award the full amount of benefits that the veteran is entitled to. And many of those veterans end up appealing those decisions. And the ones that get outright rejected, the other 40% or so, uh, also, many of them also end up appealing. There's a couple of criteria that a veteran needs to meet uh, to go to be eligible for benefits. If I could talk about that for a minute. Sure. Go, go right ahead. I'm just trying to understand why uh, such a high percentage of, of veterans are having their claims rejected. I would assume that within any group of people, you might have three or four or five percent of people who are not eligible. But that 40 percent number stuns me. It's a high number. And I think the reason for that is um, the. the the training issue. Um, the VA has hired a lot of people. They've had a lot of attrition over the last decade, and they've thrown a lot of new people uh, to handle these claims. And it takes generally a few years before someone is fully trained in this area in accordance with the uh, VA's own standards. And a lot of valid claims are erroneously rejected. That's what we find. And the main problem that most veterans have is uh, status is never a problem. That's the first thing you need to have a discharge that's other than dishonorable. That's the first criteria. The next criteria is that you need to have a present disability. That is, the person has to be disabled presently. You have to have uh, an incident that arose during your service that led to this disease. And the biggest problem most veterans have is obtaining medical evidence from a doctor or professional that says this condition is due to my military service. And that's so, so it's an issue of linkage. Linkage with what they call medical nexus evidence, but it's exactly that. And it doesn't have to be a cause and effect thing in uh, VA parlance. It just has to be coincident with service. You know, um, you mentioned the number of, sounds to me like caseworkers take so long to train them. How much luck is involved in this? I'm I'm concerned that every veteran should be treated fairly. And if there's a caseworker uh, who is a good caseworker and can kind of help the veteran along, Maybe he or she is lucky, whereas if a veteran gets a less experienced caseworker, does every veteran get treated equally in your experience? No. In fact, um, there was a report a few years ago uh, out of Chicago that analyzed the different regional offices and how they processed claims and compared them to one another. 
And the results in Chicago were quite low compared to other regional offices for certain categories of benefits. And the main one that they compared was post-traumatic stress disorder. Whereas if the person applied in Chicago, they would be rejected. The same fact set, say, in Providence here or in Boston would be granted. And to me, it's all dependent, at least in part, on where the person lives and what, you're right, how experienced the rater is that makes the initial call on the claim. And and as you say, there's a geographical bias. Uh, uh, it, does it break down in, in any way? I'm, I'm just trying to speculate here that, that veterans uh, in the heartland are treated better than veterans uh, on each of the coasts, or is, is there a clear, you know, the breakdown as to, as, as to where veterans are treated um, more effectively or better? No, I don't have that that kind of information okay. at my fingertips, to be honest with you. But the the study the study that was done, and I think it was done by the Tribune in, in Chicago, indicated that that regional office in, partic- in particular was having difficulty. Um, but I didn't see any sort of breakdown that said you'd be better off in this location or that location. Other right. Than okay, I didn't know if it was better off in the heartland as opposed to New York City. Uh, how yeah. long uh, does it take for veterans to receive? Uh, at least an initial answer on their disability claim. Uh, to get a, you know, once you file a claim, the general, you know, the general uh, time frame I'm thinking is about six months on average. In some regional offices, that's eight months to a year. That that's for an initial response. That's that's the initial decision. And then, if months. for some reason the veteran is denied initially, I have to assume the appeals process is even longer. It is even longer. To get to the next level past the regional office, there's the Board of Veterans' Appeals in Washington, D.C., where all appeals go. Um, And that process is at least another two years on top of that. And in many cases, the board sends it back to the regional office for a remand because something was done erroneously, and that just the clock keeps running there. And what are the biggest obstacles that, that during this process, either the initial application or the, the appeal, assuming that, uh, that, that the veteran's claim is, is, is viewed somewhat skeptically, um, is it a question of the passage of time? I would assume that the more time that passes, the more difficult it is uh, for veterans to be able to substantiate um, and, uh, and, and create this nexus to their claim. That is correct. Um, there's there's two answers to that question. For the older veterans who are filing claims many years after their service, and there's no statute of limitations, they can file at any time, um, many of their service records were destroyed. Most of the World War II Korean vets in the first quarter of the Vietnam era vets were destroyed in a fire in St. Louis. So it's hard just to get their service records to substantiate where and when they served. And the second part of that is getting medical opinions from experts to say that the condition that they're complaining of today, some 10, 20, 30 years after service, is in fact due to their military service. I think those are the two biggest obstacles. And then the last one is uh, not well-trained raiders at the VA who don't know how to apply the law as it's written. What's the what is the oldest uh, age? Uh, uh, do you still have veterans from either World War II or Korea who are coming to you looking for some help? Yes, we do. We have a number of World War II veterans still, and I have a number of Korean veterans. Most of my uh, World War II vet veterans are in their mid to late eighties, and some are one or two are in their nineties. Believe it or not, 
who are still filing claims. No, that makes. I mean, it makes sense when you do the if you do the math. Uh, if you were born in 1920, uh, you would have been uh, prime age uh, to uh, to join the military or be drafted in circa 1941, and that's exactly where they're going to be today. Is there one particular group of veterans that are having a more difficult time receiving treatment? I again, being uh, someone who grew up, you know, during the the Vietnam era, uh, and remember how a lot of the returning veterans were treated coming back from that war a lot differently than today. I think we, we, we might, people might disagree over the war, but I think everyone embraces the warriors. Is there a, a particular a group of veterans um, that are having a more difficult time? I think historically the Vietnam era veterans have had a more difficult time. Um, that's my sense of it. And I think the, the people that are having a difficult time presently are the ones that served during Gulf War One. Um, so-called Gulf War illness is still yeah. undefined by VA, although they're making progress on that. I think they're finding a lot of difficulty with their claims. So I would say those two groups in particular historically have had have had, had challenges, especially with the Agent Orange exposure for the Vietnam era veterans. And and I know that there was uh, in terms of Iraq the the, the Iraq War one. There's question about the oil fields that burned, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, there's a big thing going on in terms of the exposure to the oil fields in the current war. The burn pits is another big thing that's happened. They've been burning trash and other toxic chemicals. Um, and there's been some uh, recent promulgations of regulations by VA regarding exposure to this, these burn pits and including the fires from Gulf War One. Is anything being done at this point to uh, make the whole process easier for, for veterans? I think two. I think VA is trying to do two things. The first thing they're trying to do is hire more people to handle the crush of claims. Uh, the number of claims being filed is going up dramatically each year, and they've hired uh, many new people. I think the second thing that's being done is trying to make the initial process easier by reducing the page limit for the initial application, as I said earlier. And eventually, they want to try and move this to an online uh, filing, electronic filing. But that's still years away from my understanding, but they are working at it. Well, we're going to take a quick break now, and uh, when we return, we're going to talk more about the practice of veterans law, uh, particularly within the context of the VA administration, with our guest today, Attorney Robert Chisholm. Located in Boston and steeped in 138 years of rich tradition, BU Law is number one in teaching quality according to Leiter Law School rankings and number three in the nation for best professors according to Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872 and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. Now back to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray, a lawyer, a veteran Boston broadcast journalist, and BU Law alum. And welcome back to this edition, today's edition of the Boston University School of Law podcast. I'm Dan Ray. And my guest today is Robert Chisholm. He is also a Boston University Law School graduate. He's an attorney and he fights for the rights of uh, American veterans. Uh, Rob, uh, from which war, I, I assume um, it, it's probably going to be Iraq, but maybe I'm wrong. The, the majority of your clients, where do they come from? Which war? 
Well, actually, the majority come from Vietnam presently. When I started okay. uh, representing veterans in the early 90s, it was mostly World War II vets, and now it's mostly Vietnam-era vets. And we're just starting to see the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan vets presently because their claims generally don't come to us till later in the process. All right, well, let's talk about the Vietnam veterans. At this point, and again, Vietnam veterans are now um, probably many of them in their late 50s into their 60s and maybe even some as, 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 as old as 70. Um, what's the most common ailment those, these veterans are dealing with? Is it Agent Orange? I think it is Agent Orange that we're seeing most of the claims in presently. And recently, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Secretary Shinseki, ex- has expanded the ailments that fall under what we call presumptive diseases. That is, if you set foot in the landmass of Vietnam and you have diabetes type 2, uh, that is now what we call a presumptive condition. We've seen a lot of those. And they've recently added ischemic heart disease, which includes uh coronary artery disease, myocardial infarctions, as presumptively exposed to Agent Orange. So we're going to see a lot more of this. And then the other big thing we see are post-traumatic stress disorder cases. And I assume that those are hard, are more difficult to prove. They are very difficult to prove for two reasons. The first one is we don't always have service records to show that the individual veteran was exposed to a specific stressor. And if the veteran does not have a combat um, MOS, a military occupational specialty, then they have to get some sort of corroborating evidence as to the stressful event in service that led to the PTSD. And this can be very challenging in cases. In one recent case that we had, we were able to get some photographs that the veteran himself had taken and uh, submit those to prove that he had, in fact, been in combat. Let, let, let me move forward to today's veterans, uh, those uh, who have served in either Afghanistan or Iraq. Uh, clearly, that's been that con- those two conflicts have been going on now for upwards of eight, well, nearly nine years. Um, what are the common ail- ailments of the, the current day soldiers who are coming out of Afghanistan and Iraq? Are they the, uh, clearly Agent Orange, is, uh, defoliation was not necessary in, in Iraq or Afghanistan. So what are, what are the, um, the ailments for today's soldiers? Well, the biggest thing we're seeing is a traumatic brain injury, plus the physical injuries from the improvised explosional devices, the IEDs, yep. as well as post-traumatic stress disorder and other psychiatric conditions. As you look, um, sort of take the broad view, uh, take a couple steps back, do you think there are positive changes uh, underway in terms of the Veterans Administration system generally? I think there are. I think they're trying hard to process these claims. They're working closely with the Department of Defense, finally, the last few years to coordinate the transfer of the service records over to the VA so the VA gets those service treatment records faster, and then that helps them process the claims quicker. And I think the fact is they are trying to process these uh, Afghan and Iraqi veterans' cases as quickly as they come in. There's been a mandate to do that. Well, it sounds like a fascinating practice of law and a, and a, and a practice of law that can help people. Um, how big is the uh, the veterans law bar, if you will? Um, is there a need for more attorneys who, who would specialize in the sort of work you do? I think there is a need for more attorneys in this area. Um, historically, and then by that I mean for the last 10 to 15 years that I've been involved in this, um, there weren't many veterans attorneys our practitioners in this area. And in 2007, Congress changed the law and opened up the process a little bit more. But there are so many deserving veterans who um, go unrepresented in this system. 
and it would be good to have more attorneys in the system, I think. What recommendations would you make if there, if there are law students uh, listening today or prospective law students listening today? Uh, what sort of uh, advice, recommendations would you give anyone who is actually considering potentially a legal a, a career uh, representing uh, veterans? Uh the biggest practitioner, believe it or not, is the VA, uh, who represents who represents Department of Veterans Affairs before the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, and there are also um, a lot of positions at the Board of Veterans Appeals and needs for attorneys over there as well, as well as a number of uh, private practitioners like myself. Uh, most of us are small small firms uh, working in this area, and there's also uh, at the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims there's a pro bono consortium. And they do a good job training uh, new attorneys, as well as the National Organization of Veterans Advocates. Um, they do a good job of training attorneys. Well, that's great. Uh, there's a lot of lot of ways to practice law, and this is one that probably people won't think of uh, immediately. You, you can think of other ways in which to practice law, but this is a group of people who do need a representation uh, in this system. And and I want to congratulate you and thank you for the work you do. I want to thank you also. Uh, Robert Chisholm, uh, he is with the firm of Chisholm, Chisholm, and Kilpatrick in Providence, Rhode Island. And Rob, uh, would you like to give a website for the firm or some way in which folks who might be listening to the podcast today could contact you? Sure. Uh, my email address is rchisholm, C-H-I-S-H-O-L-M, at cck-law.com. And our website is www.cck-law.com. All right, Rob Chisholm, thanks very, very much. Always great to uh, talk to a fellow Boston University School of Law alumnus uh, who's making a difference. Uh, for this edition of uh, the Boston University School of Law podcast uh, and also for the Legal Talk Network, I want to thank all of you for listening. Tell your friends about the podcast. And uh, these podcasts are, can be listened to at any time of day. All you have to do is go to the Legal Talk Network and also to the Boston University School of Law uh, website. Uh, for now, uh, I remain Dan Ray. And I look forward to the next time we have a chance to uh, interview someone who's making a difference. Thank you very much, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.